This is Mike Montero. I'm Erica Hall. This is Larissa Berger. We're broadcasting from Mule Design Studio in beautiful North Beach, San Francisco. This is Voice of Design. Hello and welcome to The Voice of Design, coming to you from our underground bunker in beautiful North Beach in San Francisco, California. I am Erica Hall. I am Larissa Berger. This is Mike Montero. We usually have a guest here, but we decided not to have a guest today because we had something specific that we want to talk about, which is which is the thing that we've been talking about in the studio all week, mm-hmm. which uh, I'm pretty excited about. And I thought, you know, we want to talk about that. Cool. So what's going on? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we've, what we've been talking about a lot lately is how uh, we can use design, you know, because one of the things designers like to talk about is how we can use the tools of design to, uh, to make the world a better place. And it seems like something went sideways with that, right? Because it seems like, wow, a couple of years ago, designers are really talking about how we can use design to make the world a better place. And now all these systems that people have been working on seem to have kind of gotten out of hand. What systems specifically are you thinking about? Well, like all the the platform, like social media platforms mm-hmm. are really a obvious place to start. And I think right now, uh, you know, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter are all really wrestling with uh, being used as tools of, uh, you know, the dissemination of propaganda and conspiracy theories. Are they like though? That. Yeah. There's all those weird ads now that have popped up around San Francisco where they remind you that Facebook is for friends. Fake news is not your friend. Yeah, yeah that's, that's super they're weird. In, and they're, they're in really kind of inconspicuous places and also conspicuous places at the same mm-hmm. time, such that they really do feel like 1984. Like yeah. Behind the grocery yeah. store, it all of a sudden says like, Facebook is for friends. Yeah. And, and very strange things are also happening with uh, uh, machine learning, mm-hmm. what people commonly refer to as artificial intelligence. Although, you know, it's, it's debatable how intelligent it is. The part I was arguing with was you said that these companies were wrestling with what happened. And as far as I can tell, you've got like Facebook is is staging a PR campaign. Mm-hmm. The Facebook is your yeah. friend campaign. Right. Yeah. Like like they have a PR problem. Mm-hmm. It's like you've got a building on fire and you decide to fight it by putting up a sign that says this building is not on fire. Mm-hmm. And as far as I can tell, Twitter ain't doing shit about their problem. Yeah. Except arguing that they don't have one. Yeah, and I think that I think the problem at the heart of all of this is that a lot of these organizations uh who have designed systems and are are working with really, you know, talented designers who aren't bad people who want to do the right thing, who are working with these uh, interesting design problems is that what makes money for the company, you know, to to be very clear that what makes money for the company and what is good for people have really diverged. And I think that's kind of at the heart of, of what, you know, we've been talking about and what I've, I've specifically been thinking about, like, how do we help solve that for designers? Yeah. So if day to day they're solving the problem for users or, or the different personas that they're creating or, or whatever their design process is, how do they connect that with the kind of higher level goals without getting stuck in the weeds, essentially? You said, how do we solve this for designers? I just want to... Right. Like, I, that's an important... Yeah. I, yeah. I have an important disagreement there with that. 
Well, maybe you didn't mean it that way. No, I didn't mean like we're solving a problem for designers, but I what I what I'm trying to solve is that I believe that a, a lot of the designers I know really want to use their skills and their expertise to in some way make the world a better place. And that's why there's been so much discussion around human-centered design and around empathy. But I think because designers aren't thinking about things the right way and aren't thinking about the whole problem, they go into these businesses which, with good intentions and end up being tools of a larger system because they haven't like stepped back and looked at the whole system because the concepts and the language and the way that we've been talking about the profession of design only looks at a part of the entire problem. Yeah, I think it goes back to a lot of what we've been talking about this whole season, which is that the job of a designer is much bigger than just creating the visual assets or writing the copy or creating the design system that Mm -hmm. will kind of furnish an app. They're also accountable for why they're designing what they're designing. And Mm -hmm. what we've been discussing this week is how do you actually do that? Because that's a lot to take on. So in, in that way, I can see how it's for, yeah. for designers. But Mike, yeah. what was your take on this being for designers versus for somebody else? It was, a, it was a small clarification. I don't even know if it's a big deal. You said solving the problem for designers. Mm-hmm. And I honestly don't care about designers other than we need to be doing our job. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't like, and our job is to solve problems for people. Mm-hmm. So I want to make uh-huh. sure that if designers are uncomfortable doing, doing their job, I could give a rat's ass, right. quite honestly. Uh, yeah, but that, that's not what I was talking about. That's why I felt mm-hmm. like it was worth clarifying. Yeah, because I think the problem is that designers think of themselves as solving problems for people. And the way that, especially in the field known as user experience design, even baked into the name. And that's the the name that's typically used to be synonymous with any form of like digital interaction design is that you, your job as a designer is to create an experience for one person at a time interacting with a system. And that is the user experience you're designing. And the whole idea, the whole methodology of personas is to help Think of the people you're designing for as individuals with, you know, discrete patterns of behavior. But every time a designer thinks about, oh, I'm, I need to think about I'm designing for this one specific person for their subjective experience. And so I think that that way of framing the work is flawed to such an extent that by focusing on the emotions of the individual you're designing for and creating a system for them, designers are setting aside all the, the entire other part of the problem. And because of that, because they go into this with good intentions saying, oh, I want to help this person, but I'm not thinking about the whole system I'm working within because that's not my job, because the business model is not my job, because uh, the externalities are not my job, because my job is to advocate for the user. Mm-hmm. I think that that framing, while well-intended, has contributed to the creation of these systems, which are terrible for our economy, are, you know, exacerbating inequality, and are actually working to the detriment of the users they purport to be designing for. Okay, and I don't want any of those things to happen. (laughs) So here's my honest question to you. 
how does me caring about how these companies make money help to get us out of that problem? Ah, that's a very good question. Because if you don't care about how the company makes money, then you're going to design something that is initially seems uh, really great for the user and you're going to kind of set up a, um, like a honey trap. You're going to get all these people to come in and use the product who are like, hey, this is cool. But because the business model has not been thought through, then all that whole product or service or system is going to have to make money somehow. And because designers weren't involved in thinking through how to make money in a human-centered way, then the business people or the investors are going to think, oh, wow, we have all these people. How can we use them to make money? And they're going to think about just how to use the people they've collected. And that's going to lead to the degradation of that experience. And that's going to lead to, you know, selling people's data. Mm -hmm. And because all the designers construed their job totally as, oh, I advocate for the user. And as long as I'm creating a good user experience, that's automatically going to be good for the user. Like that's one of the big myths. Then a good user experience is automatically going to be good for the business, which is another huge myth. And then even the idea that creating a good user experience is the good that you should be aiming for, thinking about the individual rather than thinking about the entire system. And so then the designers are just blind to the whole system or ignoring the whole system. And the system we're working in is really this like technologically enabled growth capitalism, which is scaling all this stuff much faster than people are dealing with it. So creating a good user experience isn't enough for for a good business. Right. You said that, right? Yeah. Okay, talk about that a little bit more because that's an interesting thing to throw out. Yeah, I think that is, that's the central myth of the design profession right now. Okay. So there's been all this talk about empathy, right? There's been all this talk about, oh, I need to understand my customer's needs. But that, so, so we've been talking a lot internally about design as an exchange of value, right? The business, the organization whether a uh, like a for-profit business or not, the organization creates something of value to to the user and, and to the customer, you know, and if their customer and user are different. And in exchange, the whole reason for a business doing that is to get some value out of that person that they're designing an experience for. Mm-hmm. And that, it's it's like you have to think about balancing an equation, right? You don't invest all of this in making somebody out in the world, you know, improving their experience unless you're getting something back. But just because you're giving somebody something great doesn't mean you're going to make money. Like you can totally lose money. Can you give us any examples? Yeah. The most recent example is, uh, say, uh, Virgin America, the airline. Virgin America had arguably a better customer experience than any domestic airline in the U.S., Okay. Larissa, you were going to say something. Yeah, well, when Erica was talking about kind of uh, designers not taking on that part of the problem, it occurred to me also that when companies or services are creating things for different audiences, so if it's a customer experience in terms of like how Facebook sees their end user, which is somebody with a login and an account, who goes to the site and looks at the news feed, that's a different kind of user from an advertiser or a company or somebody who wants to kind of aggregate data. 
like those products began as pure software products, I think. So as, as APIs, um, and that's actually something that has no surface area in the app um, to start. And I think a lot of startups begin that way where they have, um, they might have something that is the traditional kind of customer experience, user experience, where they try to take lessons from like a Virgin America or these other examples that Erica has drawn on. But then they try to figure out, okay, how do we make this a business? And then the answer is something, something cloud, something, something data, something, something API. And that's much faster to iterate on. So they don't even go to the trouble of necessarily hiring what they think a designer is. Whereas in the model that Erica's proposing, like a designer is more of a systems thinker and is balancing these transactions. Right. So I want to clarify something that you said. There's a difference between a designer caring how the company they work for makes money and caring that it make money. So let's say I work at Twitter. I know how Twitter makes money. It's my job to know how they make money. It is not my job as a designer to help them make money above all. Uh, I, I would say it absolutely is. It absolutely is what? your job as a designer to care how the business makes money. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. But what I, am I, I willing what you're to saying. Yeah, it is. And I even think that that, that we hold, that it is a designer's job to make the company money, right? I think that would be surprising to many designers. Like if I could go back in time to my younger self, or even when I meet um, designers who've just begun their careers, like truly at the first company that I worked after college, like, once I started to tap into what was costing them money or what would make them more money, suddenly my projects like got completed. Mm -hmm. So there is a huge benefit as even a junior designer to care about how the company makes money because that kind of instantly helps grease the, the stuff that you're working on. But I think that's different. And what you're pointing out is that you should care that they do, but it's not your job to care like how much or that they like build value for shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. Like exactly how that goes down is not the job of a designer. Is that Let accurate? me see if I can phrase it okay. a better way. It is absolutely a designer's job to understand the business model mm. of the place they work and to help design that business model and to help ensure that it's an ethical business model. All of those things are part of a designer's job. It is also part of a designer's job that if a company comes up with an unethical business model, it is the designer's job to step in front of that unethical business model and say, hell no, I will not be part of making money this way. Right. So there, I said it all as positives. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, what I'm, what I'm saying that I think is different from the way a lot of designers conceive of their job is that the fundamental thing that you are designing is the business model. Yes. You need, you need to start there and start thinking like, uh, otherwise you're not solving the entire problem. I agree. Okay. Like as opposed to the user journey or like, like the specific, mm -hmm. and, and that is how a lot of, I mean, it's in the name, how a lot of like user experience designers think about yeah. their role. I'm only thinking about the customer journey right. and not thinking about 
all of the other aspects of that. So there's no way to do, to design a delightful user journey into mm-hmm. a slaughterhouse. Okay, so going back to like the user journey piece, right? Like something that's even radical about, for instance, when we use engagement paths to model how external audiences may experience an interface. Um, one of the columns in our uh, engagement paths exercise is like, how does this benefit the business? And I think Erica's point is that that's often a question that designers don't ask. And it's absolutely true that if that benefits a business in a way that's harmful to society, that's something that people within the organization should definitely care about. But I think that as a starting point, people don't even take it that far. They don't even have that column. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like a radical notion that that you would make sure that, you know, a user's task would align with something that the business does. That's crazy, you know? Yeah. So like, like we'll design a, jo- a jobs page or, or a website and we'll say, hey, what does this do for the organization? Oh, it diversifies or like builds, expands the community that they can reach to excite about job opportunities. Like that's a business goal, even though it sounds like a user task. And that actually puts a responsibility on the organization to to have that as one of their priorities too. Yeah. So it's like designers and even like with, with all this talking about design thinking, the way the design is spoken of is design, we're solving a problem for a user. And I'm saying, no, that's not the problem. Because you always talk about design as the solution to a problem within a set of constraints. And I'm saying that if you only solve the problem for the user then you're totally not solving the problem of the exchange of value between the user and the business. And that is the problem designers need to solve. That's the whole problem. Otherwise, you could create a much larger problem by solving an, an individual's problem, right? Because, and that, and that goes to that whole myth of like, the myth is like, oh, if you solve somebody's problem, that creates a business. And that's that's absolutely not true. And if you don't, do that intentionally. If you don't solve the business problem and the user or and or customer problem simultaneously, then you're not actually intentionally solving the problem. Yeah, like there's this network effect of delight and you feel enough delight and then all of a sudden you won't care about what the cost of a airplane ticket is and you'll pay more and you'll 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 suddenly make all these different decisions because you've had this like designed beautiful experience and Erica saying that just isn't the case. So is there a better way? Like how can we better train designers to care about this stuff or to think about this stuff? So I think designers care, but I think the whole framework cuz the 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 language we always hear is design needs a seat at the business table. Mm-hmm. And I I think the other fallacy baked into that is that design is somehow separate from business decisions, right? Because we've heard all this like, oh, all of a sudden there's like designer founders or businesses caring about design. But all design is, is a set of decisions and a set of choices. Like you can't not design. And so the thing is that we want all of these decisions to be made intentionally. And that is design. And they all need to be made holistically. And and that's the thing I want to solve is you can't just solve the problem for a one-sided equation. You have to look at the whole thing and say, how are we creating a business that creates value for some people and creates value for the business and creates value or at least doesn't drain 
like the existing resources in the system, in the world, right? That's the whole problem. And and so that's what I've been thinking about. Mm -hmm. And in thinking about this, right, we talk about like designers as storytellers a lot because we use narrative to help people really think through complex systems. And uh, what Larissa was talking about earlier, a really common way of, of using story and design is like the customer journey map or the user experience journey map or something like that, where you take like, again, the one individual, like really focused on the one individual and say, oh, what's their experience of this system? And then you, you feel like because you're looking at their perspective that, that you've solved the whole problem. Or maybe you take like a few, but then you never like really figure out like what the relationship even is between those people. So you'd be like, okay, here's one role and that's an audience and here's another role and that's an audience. But that's that's very still extremely lacking um, yeah, it's, it's from the system's view. It's like one person at a time. And mm-hmm. you never, and what never, ever happens in design that I've seen is that you take the user's perspective and the business perspective and like map them on the same document. Like they're, they're like diagrams that help model both, but there is nothing that actually brings them together. And so I was uh, thinking, so there was this, uh, this sustainability consultant, John Elkington, who almost 25 years ago in 1994 came up with this idea of the triple bottom line, which is a really famous concept in sustainability and everything around, I think, sustainable business touches on this, on this idea that, you know, you take accounting the accounting bottom line about like, does your business make money or not? And then add a line for uh, the social aspect, the people, and add a line for the planet, right? And so this was a really, really popular idea. So the business, you're measuring the health of the business. Mm -hmm. You're measuring the health of the people. Yeah, society. Which Oh, society. Society in general. Okay, so how does your business impact society? Mm -hmm. And then the health of the planet, how does your business impact the planet? Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. And so this is this was a really famous idea that everybody who cared about sustainability and that sustainability is a word that we've been talking about for the last couple of decades in business. And so I was thinking about that. And then I happened to, you know, just start reading a lot of Kurt Vonnegut, right? Because he's a, a mm-hmm. fantastic writer mm-hmm. to be reading right now because uh, he came out of World War II and his really famous novel Slaughterhouse-Five was, you know, inspired by the experience of actually surviving the war in a slaughterhouse during a bombing. And he went off and he went to the University of Chicago to get his anthropology degree. And then he had, he did a master's thesis where he was really thinking about stories and how people use stories. And he thought, you know what? Every, like, every basic story that people tell has a, has a shape. Like narrative actually has a, a like a shape that you can graph on a piece of graph paper on an XY axis. And he went and he figured out six uh, universal shapes. And he's like, you can map human stories according to these graphical representations. Is this similar to like the, the user journey that yeah. we talk? Okay. Yeah. It's, it's very similar. He was talking about... So character journey. In a book then. Yeah, like The okay. Journey of the Protagonist. Okay. Like, and one of the really, uh, one of the ones he uses as a major example is like Cinderella, right? Like in C- the Cinderella story as a shape. And he was so excited that he figured out that Cinderella and the New Testament had like the same shape about like, oh, you progressively get more gifts, you get really happy, and then a bad thing happens, which in Cinderella is the clock strikes midnight and in the New Testament, Jesus gets crucified. So... Bummer. So he drew parallels between those. And then... She uh, loses a shoe. Yeah, she loses a shoe. (laughs) But then, you know, the prince, he fits the shoe to her foot. 
uh, Jesus uh, resurrects, same, and then happy, happily ever after. And same, same. Hard same, hard same as the kids hard, hard say. Same. And it's drawn on the same, the, uh, the y-axis is like the same happiness, unhappiness that is typically used in a, in a customer journey. Mm-hmm. And so I was, uh, I was thinking about this. And so the thesis was rejected. Uh, his master's thesis was rejected. Vonnegut's. Vonnegut's master's thesis was rejected. And he said- You're kidding. He said it was because it was too simple and too fun. And and based on my- um, Academia is bullshit. Ac- yeah, academia. It, truly. <laughs> truly. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking about these things together and I thought, you know what? You could absolutely use his idea of making an extremely simple graphical representation of a narrative and you could do it for the three perspectives, right? You could say, here is the customer however you want to construe the customer, like one customer, group of customers that you're designing for, right? The person you're designing for, that I- idealized person, okay. persona, whatever. You could graph their happiness, unhappiness, their, which was like good fortune, ill fortune, very broadly. You could graph against that the business. So at every point of interaction, you should be able to say, oh, is, is the customer getting value? Is the customer getting happier? Is the business getting value? Is the business getting happier? And then you can also graph with the same simple kind of line, the health of the system. And you could take that to mean environmental health. You could take that to mean, you know, society as a whole, democracy, whatever. But you could take three perspectives and graph them simultaneously in a really simple way to get a sense of by doing this, how do we solve the whole problem? So how is this company affecting its customers slash users? Yeah. How is this company affecting society? Parentheses system. Yeah. And how is this company affecting itself financially? Yeah. Yeah, Making money. Staying afloat. Yeah. 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 So you're measuring three Mm -hmm. things now. Yeah. Well, you're not measuring them. Okay. You are plotting them. You're you're plotting them. You're yeah. you're visualizing so that at every point. So say you're designing an interactive system, and the way that like with a, a customer, like oh here's this interaction, and the customer's at a decision point and they're they're feeling good about that. Like oh they're they're um you know signing up for a service, and they're feeling kind of hopeful but not very happy. They experience the service. They're feeling really happy. Uh, they get the bill for the service. They're feeling way less happy, whatever. So when you take every interaction point when you're designing, you can say, okay, if we design it like this, what will it do for the user? What will it do for the business? And what will it do for the system as a whole? And if you visualize that very simply, you can have conversations with the designers and with the people from the business, however you want to think about those groups, you can have a unified conversation. And as far as I know, there are no tools that people are using to have that, right? And the reason why the triple bottom line didn't work out, right? Because we don't really... It didn't? At basically every design conference, someone will say triple bottom line. But it's kind of a way to check a box Mm -hmm. uh, to say, hey, yeah, we're we're caring about this thing. We give it lip service. But... it didn't work out in the sense that it's difficult to point to any major design decisions that are informed by the triple bottom line. Yeah, it hasn't really changed anything. In fact, um, you know, John Elkington, the guy who created it last month, when it's, a, it's approaching the 25th anniversary of this idea. 
And he (laughs) wrote a piece in The Economist saying, I would like to recall this idea in the same way that you recall a defective manufactured object. Because what happened, what he said was that he thought in principle, like, fine, it was a great idea. People thought the idea was very attractive. But then everything built on it was so complicated. Like the models, the sustainability models were so complicated that businesses were able to give lip service to the idea, but never actually do anything. So it was using the complexity to hide what was actually going on. And so what I think we should be doing is using simplicity to have a very easy to conceptualize and grasp uh, representation so that we can have these hard conversations that the complexity or the siloing of business apart from design is hiding. And to take, so to take your Twitter example that you were talking about earlier, like Twitter is really off the rails because they make money when people kind of engage with the system, right? And they get a lot of attention and things get a lot of retweets and they, they have more users and they can have more people interacting with ads. That's how Twitter makes money. But a lot of times the engagement makes people very sad because, for example, if somebody tweets something and is then attacked by a lot of trolls, that is a very bad interaction for the user, but a very good interaction for Twitter. Right. And nobody is plotting both aspects of that interaction on the same graph. And so the way to the way to do this is in advance when you're telling the story, like the integrated story of your product, right? Yeah. It feels like this whole industry has been kind of just like running on credit in a way. <laughs> like it's funny to bring in a concept of triple bottom line because it's actually one of the first mentions of any kind of accountability that comes up in a design conference or in a design context. And it's like, well, where were we kind of keeping track of any accounting, to my knowledge, it all seems to be suspended, like prices suspended. Any sense mm-hmm. of zero sum in technology industry yeah. is very suspended. I think that also the reason that designers are attracted to that phrase is that it feels so quantitative and authoritative in that regard. But I mean, humans have been navigating this level of system complexity for millennia with storytelling. So it really makes sense that if we need to make meaning of a very abstract system with lots of things going on, um, stories are a great way to do it. So we've got the triple bottom line. Right. And now we've got the triple storyline. One thing that occurred to me, and I don't know where this is going, but you mentioned that the triple bottom line was a way to measure sustainability. Yeah. Which has the word sustain in it. Mm-hmm. So I assume they're related. Mm-hmm. You're measuring the effect of something over time. And when you bring sustainability in, you start thinking about larger chunks of time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You don't have like, oh, this is sustainable for a day. That's not sustainable. Right. This right. is sustainable over a century is, you know, right. that's more sustainable. In the world of, of Silicon Valley and Sil- Silicon Valley invested companies, is sustainability even a thing? No. Right. Okay. Tell me more about that. Uh, Well, sustainability isn't a thing in Silicon Valley if you're talking about venture-backed growth capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. Because the incentive of the investor is to get their money out at a 10x multiple to to make it very simplified. And quickly. And, And quickly. So it's like within 10 years, right? And so 
the investors, so a, a lot of the decisions, a lot of the design decisions are being couched in, say, user or customer-centered terms. But when it comes down to it, they have to be in service of getting a return to capital. And that return of capital to the investors at a multiple is in no way, it has nothing to do with how good things are for the individual users of the system or for the world. Like there's nothing, there is no relationship. There's no inherent relationship between a company making a billion dollars for its investors and a company doing anything good for people. And there's a time horizon, right? Once you have that liquidity event, once the company goes public or is acquired and the the capital is returned to the investors at a multiple, they don't care. There's no, then there's no connection between the investors and the company anymore. Right. So the company is being run or controlled or whatever by people who simply don't care about the long-term effects that the company has. Correct? Incorrect? Correct. Yeah. Right. And this isn't, this isn't even in like a, a malicious way. It's that they have no interest in the company as anything other than an investment vehicle. And right. and like we know people in the venture community and there are a lot of people who are conscientious and have a, a sort of generalized concern, but their job, like they do not succeed if the company does something good for the world or or brings a lot of value to individual customers of that company. Like that's not what the limited partners who give their money to the venture fund care about. They care about getting their money back. And so it really is like doing good in the world is a nice side effect. And I think I think the conceit, this myth at the heart of how we've been talking about user experience design that says, oh, if you do something good for the customer, that will necessarily be good for the business. That myth has provided cover for a lot of dirty things to be happening, right? Like, oh, we made something really convenient and that's made the business grow. So therefore, this has got to be a business that has some benefit. But no, it could turn out to be something that's really like a a short-term convenience. Like I I think a good example outside of Silicon Valley is like take OxyContin, right? I try not to, but okay. (laughs) Well, don't don't take it. It's, It's highly addictive. Uh, but this company, this drug, which is highly addictive and has like killed people and destroyed lives, is is incredibly profitable, right? And and if you go to a person who's who's taking oxy, you might say, "Are you happier when you take oxy?" And they might be say, "Yeah," right? So then that's their experience. Say their experience in the short term is like, ah, oh, it took, took away my pain. But then over a longer time horizon, it's like, oh, I'm an addict and my life has totally gone to hell because I've, I've become addicted to this medicine. Meanwhile, their addiction is fueling corporate profits, right? right. And so you want to, and that's, that's again, another ex- extreme case and there are much less extreme cases, but you should be able to graph that over time, right? And you're like, oh, in the short term, company profits and user good fortune track very well together. But you look at a longer time horizon, if you look at the whole story, then you're like, oh, then the person's health and happiness tanks and the company's profits go way up. And you're like, wow, I want to solve for a world because the goal is to solve for a world where companies do make money. Because if the company doesn't make money, like you look at a company like RDO. Yeah, the music streaming The music streaming service, yeah. That had a really great user experience. But 
the company went under because there was no business model there because they didn't solve the whole problem. And that's actually to the detriment of the users because if the if something you love goes away, it's bad. Well, RDO went under because they were using Echo Nest as their backend. And so was Spotify. And then Spotify bought Echo Nest. And so like a slicker user interface was not more important than having the next song be relevant to your interests. So without like a powerful backend, there wasn't a business. So their competitor ate their lunch. Yeah. Basically yeah. they, they depended. By eating their food source. It, yeah. They depended on like the true value of, of those platforms was kind of a lot of work <laughs> that right. this other company had done. They, their, their product was providing the API. Uh, they provided the API other companies used it. And then Spotify recognized quickly that this would be a differentiator and acquired them. Yeah. And that's a really good phrase. You just used the true value, like the hardware store. True value. True value. So there's there's a lot of conversation about delight and, oh, delighting the user is the same as giving them value. And I think in this case, you see that, no, the thing that gave them value was this sort of backend system that wasn't the the top, like, presentation, interface, interaction, experience layer, the value of that was good and it had value, but that wasn't where the essential core value of that transaction was in the service. And so it didn't matter how good the interface was. It didn't matter how good the, like, the social recommendation engine was without the platform that Spotify bought. That's where the actual value was. So the so the value that the designers were, the interface designers, the front end interface designers were contributing was negligible as far as like a sustainable business. So if I'm a designer, and let's define the term as widely as possible, and I'm working at RDO, and I just found out that my competitor ate my lunch, mm-hmm. what can I do? Well, th- th- there's, it's too late at that point. So it's time to bail. Mm. Eh. Well, uh, yeah, I, I suppose. I okay. think that but I think it, what's really dangerous about like these like software-based interaction problems is that they somehow get very narrow very fast, and there seems to be a lot of resistance um, because as soon as they start to make money from something, they're like, okay, okay, that's the thing that we make money at. That's what we do. But honestly, like if I'd been running RDO, I would have had user research still as a priority. I would have tried to have like some landscape of that space. And so if someone did eat my lunch, ideally there would be another area that I could say, oh, hey, you know, right. Maybe we're not selecting the next song so well. So we'll let Pandora and Mm -hmm. Spotify duke it out. Um, But we are really good at usability and something might change in cars later. Mm -hmm. So maybe if we could just like serve up the right song hands free that would offer a different kind of value. Yeah. And maybe then RDO would be the service that Alexa uses because Spotify and Alexa don't play together mm-hmm. super well. But if you're really good at interface design and you understand like kind of how to create the right cues, I don't see why that couldn't have translated to voice and they could have been ahead on that. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about there is something that requires time yeah. and trust. And money. Again, we're back at the venture capital model. 
Mm-hmm. So, because RDO didn't run out of customers. Yeah, they have still all these fans who are like, yeah. right. RDO yeah. gone. Well, they, they, Which everyone wants to do. They want to create fans. Basically, they, they got to a point where they became, like, it became dumb to invest in them. Yeah, they were they were the horse that didn't win the race. <laughs> yeah. Right. Of the of the 10 yeah. that get bet on. So, a giant company like, say, General Electric or Ford they need to think about what they're still going to be doing in 20 years. Because I'm guessing they still want to be in business in 20 years. So they're considering things that that might be happening down the road a bit. Mm -hmm. In the venture capital model, you've got companies who are basically lighting rockets into the stratosphere to see if they can hit a larger, something larger in orbit and become part of it. Yeah. And then we end up with a lot of space junk. Right. <laughs> yes. So I'm in my little startup. I've got my first round of funding. I've got the thing that I convinced people that I could do my job. And, and the minute I get my funding, my job now switches from doing the thing that got me attention to getting bought or, or IPOing or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially a shift. Mm-hmm. And now I've got like this one chance to, to either get acquired or, or less likely IPO. Right. Mm-hmm. So I only yeah. have a certain amount of time to do that. Yeah. Right. And I've got these people breathing down my neck because they're looking mm-hmm. for 10 times their money back at least. Yeah. Or they want to make a really quick decision on when to sell me off for parts. Right. Mm-hmm. So how do we, you've got these people breathing down your neck to start, you know, making money, making money, making money. And you're running out of runway. Like, how do you get people in an environment like that to care about the stuff that you're talking about, like your effect on a society your, your, or the system, uh, your effect on uh, the, the people? Because they're, I mean, they're basically like, they're basically rockets. You, once you light a rocket, you can't. It's really hard to slow them down. It's really hard yeah. to slow them down and it change mm-hmm. their direction. Totally. So I, I'd say, I'd say we have to, we have to move the conversation around design from solutions, the how, to problem definition, the why. So that's more the more abstract part of it because before you can solve the problem, you have to make sure you're, you're solving the problem right. And this is something that like, you know, the design thinking coming out of RDO doesn't really address, right? It's like, oh, let's find a need. And it's like, well, let's really make, we ha- make sure we have a good problem definition first. So before you turn your problem into, because the venture capital problem is how do we deliver a return to our investors, right? That's their problem to solve. And so what you want to do in terms of aligning, because you can even think about modeling, like what's the story of the investment against the story of the business? You could even, you know, graph those two together at the same time, because that might actually help you figure out when to take money, because you don't have to, to use the rocket metaphor, what happens is like your rocket, you can't adjust, right? If you take a whole bunch of fuel and you're pointed in one direction and you're like, kapow, I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, 80 million miles away based on I was pointed in one direction when I fueled the whole thing. You could take money more incrementally to get to different points to help you if you're very consciously, if you as 
the entrepreneur. And I think entrepreneurs are the most important designers working today. Like the whole thing about designer founder is a misnomer because all founders are designers. They are designing businesses. Absolutely. And designer founder was like, oh, we take somebody who's also a designer and they're starting a company, but that doesn't make them that's just, more That's just a low self-esteem yeah. thing. It's, it's <laughs> also like, a, it's a fear of the subjective, I think. Yeah. Too. Yeah, but that's yeah. a different conversation. Yeah. So what you do is, first of all, as an entrepreneur, you don't do this thing about like, oh, I'm going to try something. It's the whole like like prototype and test mentality. You don't say, I'm going to try something and continue adding capital to it. What you say is, I found a problem and I see the whole equation, right? I see how I can serve a need that also creates business value. I'm not just going to grow an entire audience and then figure out how to monetize them, which is where things go to hell. Right. You start with that. And then you can you can do it a couple of ways. You can either like not venture fund, you know, and do like the Jason Fried thing with Basecamp or MailChimp, which is a private company, right? Where you're like... For, we those, have a, for those of us who... Who might not know the base camp thing? Can you? Um, yeah. So Jason Fried is the founder. So there was um, a design consultancy called Thirty Seven Signals, and they moved out of design consulting into becoming a product company. They built a thing. They built a thing. They built Basecamp, and then a whole a suite of other products, and then they pulled it back to Basecamp as their core focus. And Jason Fried talks a lot about being, you know, very successful on his own terms, but not hitching his business to the venture rocket. They built that business on getting people to subscribe for it. Yeah. We were one of those people, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. We totally used to so Basecamp for a So we paid a monthly fee. Yeah. And we got to use, and, and they built a business on monthly fees. Yes. That's the way people. Before it was cool. Before. Yeah. That's the way people used to have businesses is they'd make a thing and charge for it. Right. And then all of a sudden people made things that were free. And so much stuff is free right now. And that's. And because everybody's like, la, 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 things are free. Nobody's looking at who the real customers are. And then all of a sudden people are being fed into this machine for making money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think like a lot of that kind of suspending the price, suspending the true cost of things. I mean, even if you just look at the interface design of a lot of like startup websites and their products, it's very hard to get a price. And that kind of removes this like zero sum idea because it, they are in kind of this arrested development of a company where does sustainability come in because they're very much in the part of their company where they're just trying to exist. And so I think it feels like that justifies, okay, well, we don't want to bring this to a transaction because that'll then like seal our fate. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah. I think that's kind of naive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it used to be, and this is the way that we built our business. It used to be that, you know, you start a business, you start it off as small as possible. You start with, you know, hopefully making a little bit more than you spent that first year. And then the year after that, you hope to both make a little bit more. You're probably still going to spend a little bit more, but maybe the percentage is a little bit higher. And then the third year, maybe it's a little bit higher. So every year you're growing a little bit. Yeah. And then at some, and in, you know, there's a growth spurt here, a growth spurt there, the recession here, but basically you're, you're, you're tracking a very slow growth, like over time, like companies doing a little bit better every year. We're adding a little bit more people, you know, and in the end, what you've got, you've, you've built yourself a nice sustainable business. Mm-hmm. 
But that's not the point. That's not the point of these of, of, of how we've built startups in Silicon Valley. It's like, so I, I built a thing to get the attention of these people over here who can inject me mm-hmm. with an, an obscene amount of cash. Mm-hmm. Right. So I can go from like living off credit cards to all of a sudden having like a, a few million bucks in the bank and having to hire 25 people right. next week. Yeah, you've got to put the money to work. That's yeah, I got to put the money to work. And my goal isn't to make, you know, a little bit of money this year and then a little bit more next year. It's to, 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 to have, to get an event to happen and an eruption, like to get to a point where a, a giant company, where, where I, I start looking attractive to a giant company who then buys me for a ton of money and the guys who injected me with cash get a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the, the growth capitalism VC scenario. Um, I think an interesting kind of counterbalance to that is like, okay, talking about those bigger companies who have in mind sustainability, they have enormous R&D budgets and they are kind of not in a position to take the risk that a small startup would take. And so in some ways you could also view this whole system as like a startup is essentially doing R&D without belonging to a big company yet. And maybe they're going to fail completely, or maybe they're going to come up with something and actually do that R&D kind of independently that does shift these big giants. Yeah. So so getting back to design, because the question was like, how do we deal with this? And I think if you start with the problem first, what you find, and if you say designers want to solve problems, if designers really want to solve problems, you start with like, how do we solve the problem? And there are different ways to think about models that help solve problems. And there are many that are, that are getting left off that designers could solve if designers weren't constrained by solving them within growth capitalism, right? Because we only talk about, right now, design is only talking about the problems that are solved within this context. So if you say, well, what's the problem? Say the problem's like healthcare, right? Getting healthcare to everybody. That's a problem that government should be solving, right? Transportation is a problem, like public transportation is a problem that should be partially solved by government. It should be partially solved by private companies. There are so many different ways to solve these problems. But once you you like think, oh, I'm going to do a startup and take venture, that actually limits the problems that you can solve. Uh, and that's why in, like in San Francisco, we're like, we have all of these transportation companies either starting here or coming here very early. And it's really hard to get around the city because we're like a messed up laboratory for transportation capitalism. Like nobody is looking at the problem to say, okay, the problem I want to solve. So we need to find the problem is, oh, the problem I want to solve is I want to get people where they need to go at a price that they can afford in a way that's efficient and pleasant. If that's how you define the problem, then you can look at the whole mix and you can say, okay, what part of it should be government? What part of it should be like a private car service, like car sharing? What part of it should be sort of like ambient little vehicles like bike share or scooter share? But instead, everybody's saying, oh, I just want to make money by solving a slice of the problem and nobody's looking at the whole system. The problem is that exploiting the system and not being sustainable will always be more profitable. So we need to figure out a way to get 
designers by, I think, by having these conversations, say, what are the problems and how should we solve them outside, absent a business model? And then say, okay, what model creates a sustainable exchange of value? And that model might include like getting money from people through taxes. Because right now, the, th- the thing that's so striking is because our whole public sector is a disaster right now. And I'd say a lot in the private sector is a disaster too. And the way people are making up for it is through GoFundMe. Like GoFundMe right. is essentially a different kind of taxes now to pay for healthcare and to pay for public infrastructure projects. Because, because no designers, like the, sure there are people at these sustainability conferences and stuff, but those are mostly like, oh, let's look at graphs and blah, blah, blah. Because they're not simplifying the problem enough to say, okay, let's step back and look at what we're really trying to accomplish here, honestly, like take an honest look in simple terms. And people are using detail and expertise to obfuscate the real problems and the real solutions so that people can feel good and make money and avoid the really hard conversations and the really hard trade-offs. I think designers, a certain subset of them, are eager to go to this place, but nobody is talking about that in the field of design because I think the the growth startups and even like in the enterprise, like scaling has taken over everything. Like we're so much more concerned about making things bigger than we are about planting the right seeds in the beginning. This comes from a genuine place of like, sure, I have this abstract idea, but it's like, how do we? Because I think the question that was on the table is a good one is like, how do we get designers to care? And I think that's a place where it's like, okay, great. I thought of a, a way to visualize this. How do you get designers to care about the bigger problem? Because so we have a tool, right? Great. We have a way to visualize this. What incentive could designers have? How do you get designers to care about the bigger problem? I'm happy to have the incentive conversation because the incentive conversation is crazy making to me. It's like, how do you give a doctor an incentive to treat a patient? Like, can you imagine walking into like a medical convention and saying, how can we incentivize the medical profession to care about their patients? It would be, it, it, it would be unheard of. It would be insane. And yet we're perfectly willing to have this conversation about designers. How can we incentivize designers to care about the shit they're bringing into the world? It's the exact same conversation, and yet we entertain it in our field, which honestly is embarrassing. It is embarrassing that designers can be out there working professionally, collecting paychecks, you know, building these things, and, and, and say, I need to be incentivized to care about the effects of my work. That, is, that to me is criminal, and those people should not be able to bring things into the world. That's my honest thought about incentivizing designers. Mm -hmm. We we talk about designers as if they're four-year-olds. Like, how can I incentivize my four-year-old to wipe his ass? Yes, I I think that does go back to like, what is the job? Because I think the reason why we're talking about the, the incentive to like sort of broaden the scope of concern is that designers are like, oh, I need to be, like the business model is not my concern. My concern is totally focusing on the user. Like, that's my concern. Yeah, I think it starts in in education, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, going back to like, you know, I keep using this doctor metaphor because I think it's, it's getting more and more apt by the day. Mm-hmm. When we do our job wrong, 
people die. That's not even an exaggeration anymore. Right. So to become a doctor, you like you go to medical school. There's like really rigorous training in the medical profession. And then there's licensing in the medical profession. And then there's like on hands training. You go through like a rotation before you ever, you know, before you're ever licensed as an MD and, you know, to become a designer, you basically, you go to art school for four years. You go, you go to like the ignored wing of the art school with, you know, the kids that do less drugs and you get a design degree where you don't learn anything about like the, 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 the effects of your work or, you know, the businesses that you work in or how to talk to any of the people that you work for, both, you know, a user and a, and, and a, and a boss level. All you learn how to do is, is you learn some cockamamie ass fucking theories, which, you know, granted they're important. You learn about aesthetics, which, you know, sure, it's important. You learn how to use a bunch of tools, which, you know, by the way, they're going to be obsolete by the time you graduate anyway. And all that stuff is important, but you really don't learn what it is to be a designer. You don't learn the responsibility of this thing that you now wield and this job that you can do and what you're supposed to be doing for that job. So, doctors, once again, like a doctor, eventually they get a job at a hospital, right? Some of them, but they walk into that job with a code of ethics that does not bend to the ethics of the hospital. You would hope, right? Like, like the, the code of ethics sits with the doctors themselves. And while the, while the hospital might impose constraints on them, like maybe it's a really poor hospital in the middle of nowhere that doesn't have all the equipment they need. And, you know, maybe the doctor has to take shortcuts. Maybe they don't have access to the latest equipment. Their job remains the same. It's to cure the people or take care of the people who, who, who come in. The place where this really um, is starting to get complicated is in a lot of other places. So the Hippocratic Oath is like pretty universal, but whether or not the doctor is caring for the mother or the unborn child is complicated. That's incredibly complicated. And yes, that is a fan, like a, a, an odd and strange and ethical dilemma to have within the medical profession. But it's about 10 levels higher than any ethical conversation that's happening in design right now. The ethical conversations in design right now are basically, should designers have ethics? which is a garbage conversation compared to what you just mentioned is happening in the, in the medical profession. Mm -hmm. Right. So but step one, education. That was my long-winded answer. TLDR, you got to train them better. Yeah, because it really, it really does go like, what, what is your job? And your job's not making artifacts. Your, your job's making decisions. And I think that's really tough because a lot of people... I think the thing we have to confront is that the actual work of design is much harder and much less tangibly satisfying than many have been led to believe. I agree. And here's a fun little exercise. Again, I'm going to run this, this comparison into the ground. Imagine that you could become a doctor the exact same way that you became a designer. So you go to like butchering school and there's a wing in butchering school that's like the people meet wing. 
and you learn how to be a doctor in the people meet wing of the butcher school. And after paying four years of tuition, they give you a degree and you can now be a doctor. There would be some really bad doctors out there and some really bad doctoring going on and a lot of dead people. Well, yeah, it used to be out of the barbering profession, right? Exactly. So the, bar- the barber surgeon. So, so maybe, <laughs> yes. Oh, God, that, that club foot yeah. situation. Bear, that's, yeah. that, that's that thing that cuts your hair with a vacuum cleaner. The Flaubert. Yeah, they're very popular in Montreal. You're a, you should get a Flaubert haircut when you're in Montreal. By the way, you need a license to be a barber. Yeah. You don't need a license to be a designer. Like, I keep coming back to this thing because I think it's honestly, that's where we are right now. You, you started with the question, how do we incentivize designers? Mm-hmm. Which to me is a crazy making question. Because if you've taken on a professional mantle and you've decided, I am a design. I'm a professional designer. I accept money for doing design. You also can't ask, how do I get this person to care about the profession they're accepting money to do? Yeah. So, so maybe, maybe the the real crux of the issue is that we are much earlier in the profession than we think we are. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, because, because again, we haven't, like, we've been having the wrong arguments about scope of practice. We've been having the stupid, like UI, UX, whatever scope of practice arguments. But, but it really is the case that we haven't really looked at like, oh, what are we doing here? Because everybody's so on about like, oh, how are we doing it? And what, what are the documents we're creating instead of like, what are the goals? It's going back to what you were saying about like startups, everybody's focused on money and like nobody cares what the company's doing. It's like the pivot thing. The company's like, oh, we're doing this today. We're doing that tomorrow because who cares what we're actually doing, which to a designer should be like, like that's madness. Right. Maybe even, you know, print design is kind of the barbershop school <laughs> barber surgeon of where design. we are now, right? So a lot of designers are going off and creating these these digital worlds that people live in all day, right? And their training is from print design often, kind of pulling more from that. Yeah, I mean, this is coming from somebody who got an education as a print designer because that's all there was. I did not come up through computer science. I came up through, you know, graphic design. Yeah. Uh, then turned into, oh shit, what I call it, I think a web designer at one point because I designed things that go on the web. And now I'm like uh, supposedly a user experience or something like that. So I just like became by virtue of still being alive, a thing I'd never actually been trained to do mm-hmm. just because I was in the field while it was happening and, and because I was interested in this stuff, but I never learned any of this shit. It's criminal that I'm allowed to do some of the things I'm allowed to do. <laughs> and not in a fun way. Yeah. And not in a heist movie way. Yeah, not in a, but it is a giant heist movie with really serious consequences. And I know that there are a lot of people out there like me. And even, you know, if, and, and I realized that, that I came in at like a, a weird inflection point in, in, in the craft. But even now, like I, you know, we hire kids and we talk to kids who are like coming out of design school right now and supposedly with like, you know, interactive design degrees or UX. I don't even know if they're doing UX degrees yet. But, you know, from what I can tell, all they've done was switch the tools. Right. 
Right. It's like, well, well, you can take, so this semester you're taking a, a web design class or you're taking like a, a, a how to code class because designers need to know that now, you know, even in terms of like professional organizations who are supposed to like, you know, look out for a craft. Like just a couple of years ago, I was at the uh, National uh, AIGA conference in Vegas. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and and uh, which, you know, oh my God, when I first, when I, you know, first became a professional and I joined, you know, the AIGA, that was such a proud moment for me. I was like, my God, I'm a professional. I'm paying dues. And, you know, I went out there and talked about some of the stuff that's going on out here. Uh, some of the stuff that designers encounter you know, when working at startups and when, you know, what happens when everybody on your team is, you know, in your twenties and, and things like that. And, you know, I went, I, I thought it went really well. And then I went backstage to the green room after the talk and a designer who was like somebody who I've like, uh, held in, in the highest esteem for the longest time, like somebody I looked up to forever sat down next to me and, and said, uh, you know, that was interesting, but the stuff you do, that's not really design. <laughs> I mean, it's funny to me how you kind of spotted this inflection point years ago and people are still surprised by it. And actually, I think that is, for me, one of the benefits of living on the West Coast in Silicon Valley. Part of the reason that I came out here is because my training isn't in design formally, um, but I'm able to work as a designer out here. And I feel like have a point of view because I was trained in how to look at systems and there's kind of this realization here. I sensed that it wasn't based upon, you know, what school did you go to or, or, you know, how beautiful can you make a design comp, but more, how are you looking at the problem through, through what lens, through this human lens. And that was really exciting to me. But to your point, I think it's strange how, and maybe this is what it felt like for doctors way back when, that there just seems to be this like very uneven consciousness raising of like, hey, this practice that was based in kind of print is now totally different. It doesn't feel like that's really hitting the industry in the same way across the board. It feels like we're still ahead of that. I get what you're saying. It's worth noting how digital designers came to be. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you go back to the world of, of print design, like you've got like formal education, formal organizations, formal like award ceremonies and shit like that, and heroes and magazines and all that, all that stuff, and a ton of history. Like you can trace the lineage. And, and I love all that stuff. And then, you know, when the, the web first you know, came on the scene, it was a world of engineers, as it should have been, as it should have been, because they made the damn thing. So kudos. Thank you. Uh, and then at some point, somebody decided, you know, it kind of looks shitty. <laughs> what can, like, can we make this look any better? And somebody said, well, you know, designers do this shit, right? <laughs> and every designer worth their worth, you know, who was good at what they did at that point, you know, looked at what could be done on the web and it was like, ugh, <laughs> that's not exciting. And, you know, besides, like, I'm making a ton of money over here in New York doing like advertising campaigns and shit like that. So no thank you. 
So instead you got these kids and God bless them. You got these kids who were like really excited, like they saw the possibility, the possibility of like designing online, being on the web that like that was weird and nuts and they were all into it. But they walked into a world defined by engineers and they were young and they had somebody else define that craft for them. Like the craft of UX design was defined first and foremost by engineers, not by designers. And I'm not blaming anybody for that. Like it makes sense why it happened that way. But at the same time, I think that there's like, it, it, it's like a garden hose that's, that's got a crimp in it. Mm. And it needs to get uncrimped. We are so far off topic here. <laughs> I think we're absolutely on topic because we're talking about the fact that, you know, we're talking about design over time. And we're talking about the story of design over time. And I think we're here because people in the field are ignoring their history. Yeah. We're like the lost tribe of Israel, of design. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Is that the desert part? I don't know. No. I don't know <laughs> shit. Yeah, because I'll, I'll tell you, my, my very first like web job was working for the publisher of Print Magazine, the Hilarious. magazine about print stuff. And the, and the publisher... Uh, the guy, the guy who actually ran the magazine, I worked for the publisher, but the editor in chief was so dismissive of the web. So I worked on the first website for print magazine and the the editor was like, that's like planting onion rings to grow onions. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be cool. That'd be cool. <laughs> onions. Yes. It, yeah. And there was a huge, there was like a huge turf war and it, and it was really dismissive because he was saying like, if this works, like he wouldn't buy into the guy who's the editor of, pr of print magazine. I was like, if this works, everything I'm about kind of becomes more irrelevant. Yeah. I mean, that's the frustrating part about this conversation for me. It's like, we talk about like, like the point that we're at right now, the point where designers need to be in this conversation at this point in time with the damage that's being done they are so ill-equipped for it, so ill-equipped for it. And it's not like you say, and, and here's where I'm going to, here's where this is going to get really depressing. It's not a matter of incentivizing people. It's a matter of starting from scratch with an entire industry and, you know, killing off who the people who are currently in the industry like, honestly, all current UX designers need to die and be replaced by a crop that's been trained properly. And then, then, then we have a snowball's chance in hell. I, I love the fact that just this morning we were talking about a modest proposal. <laughs> and this I feel is, like this, yes, this is this a is, modest proposal for this design. Is a, a modest proposal to fix UX design. Kill all designers. Well, I, yeah. So maybe we could take that and and take it down just a notch, and maybe perhaps we could offer a rebirthing service. You could Ooh. be born again to take it back to. We do have a womb chair. We do have a womb chair. We. It's we, not what it's called. We have, that is what it's called. No, that's it's the, a ball the, chair. The, no, the womb, your the womb chair is a different chair. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. No. But it's more womb-like. It's weird. See what I mean? Yeah, this one looks very womb-like. It's even red I'm... inside. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the it's ovulating. In chair. this episode, Mike tells women what a womb actually <laughs> looks like. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> no, it's not what a womb looks like. It's like a dude made a chair that looks nothing like a womb and called it the womb chair. 
So that's that. Yeah. What's this chair called? The ball chair. That's actually what it's called? That's yes. Because that's what balls look like, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> My God, you lobbed it in. Uh, <laughs> the 60s were very strange in, yeah, in furniture design. So yeah, so perhaps perhaps we need to rebaptize designers so that they can be born again into the profession. Mm, back to the Jesus. Back well, to the Jesus thing, just like Vonnegut oh, was talking about. It's a with trick to get Cindy. their heads underwater. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes, let's rebaptize them. Come to the river, children. Jeez. I didn't get that much training either around ethics, right? I think that like part of the resistance here is that this industry, this whole like growth capitalism thing was exciting because software has a very low cost compared to like other things that we've manufactured, right? Like things made out of paper and print. Those are really high cost, especially really well, quote unquote, well-designed print pieces are incredibly expensive. And just even the waste from a printing press, right? You've told stories of that. Just like- You have no idea. Dumpsters full of just like badly printed pieces or test pieces, whole trees and forests. So it's not surprising that something like that would be enticing as an investment vehicle. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, here it is. Yeah, low cost, high. And that's where the growth and the scaling comes because it's like, oh, infinite upside. Right, right. Yeah, so I guess that was also kind of when I was making the switch because for I had to declare a major really fast. So I actually declared mechanical engineering and then quickly switched to computer science and when I was making that choice, people were saying, yeah, yeah, that's so much better. There's going to be so much more of that in the world because you can make stuff without all these costs. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting. And I think now we're starting to like feel the cost of that. And in general, my education didn't really touch on the ethics, like I said. But I did have one professor who introduced to us, and this is now you know, very commonly used, the concept of state machines as a way to model computer programs. And his name was Daniel Jackson. His father was also a really notable computer scientist. And his first lecture um, was about some like military software that had been created where there was a controller um, that would have your location and would be like setting off a bomb. And when you like, you like push a button and the bomb that you'd planted like explodes. But there was a flaw with this controller because if you turned it off and turned it back on because maybe the batteries died or something, you know, something like that, instead of giving the location of the bomb that you just planted, it was giving your location and maybe some like non-planted bombs that you had in your backpack or something. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. And, you know, people died. And his explanation of how the software could have been built better, that computer scientists were not thinking about the whole problem, that we had all been siloed off. So there was the device creator for the uh, weapon. There was the device creator for the controller. There was, there was all this software that was actually interacting in these different ways and holding these different states. And, and nobody was kind of aware of the systems level. So he gave to us one of the main points of how do you encapsulate the system? How do you forget the like low level noise about like, okay, which variable is set to what? Like try to have this higher level view and understand the state of the system um, so that you can kind of keep track of the, the narrative at the machine level. And he had all these like examples of like automation that would fail. And his 
his whole thing was like, computers are supposed to be super reliable and super great and super powerful. And yet like, you know, the Denver airport spent all this money and put like multiple automation companies out of business because they couldn't figure out how to route luggage. Why can't we solve these problems? And his point was like, it's because nobody is like up here. Everyone is making flow charts. Mm -hmm. Everyone's making all these like useless artifacts Mm -hmm. that don't say anything and not creating state machines. So I feel like computer science and programming and all of that is, is also, you know, the licensing is complicated. <laughs> there, there isn't really any. And they're still in that growing pattern that you, you often describe about design of where do we hit the point where it's exciting that anyone can learn to do it, but that also has a cost on the profession. I, you know, at some point, this profession is going to have to take a hit. Yeah. It can decide to do it to itself or it can have it done to it. Yeah. We are going to get regulated. Do you remember the jungle? Mm-hmm. Upton Sinclair. Right. Mm-hmm. So because of the jungle and, and, and the uh, the uproar. And the muckraker writers the, of that generation. Right. Yeah. Uh, the government came in and, because people were, people were reading what was in the jungle and they were like, fuck, this is going in my mouth. The government came in and they regulated that industry. And right now, I mean, every day I open you know, the paper and there's another story about like shit that Facebook fucked up, shit that Twitter fucked up. And at some point, at some point we'll have a government again and they'll come in and they'll regulate this industry. And we're not going to like it. We're not going to like how they regulate it, Mm -hmm. but we cannot be surprised when it happens. Yeah. So how do we get people to care about how their work affects the place they work, Mm -hmm. the people who use what they're making? And society as a whole. Mm-hmm. I think the step on caring is is helping people visualize it, right? Because you can't, like we've found this in our gender bias workshop too. If the work is invisible, you can't like improve or redistribute the work. And so step one is helping people see the whole problem because I think that's that's why it goes back to like certain artifacts and tools. Like you need something that brings people together across disciplines and different functions in a business to say, okay, we need to all be having the same shared conceptual model vision of the problem over time, what we're trying to solve through creating these interactions. And I think only after people can see, you know, it's like they live, they need the sunglasses, which is a much better metaphor. Now we can't use the matrix because the red pill totally killed that. (laughs) But let's say it's like that. It's like the design profession needs that they live sunglasses so they can see that we've been sort of uh, infested. The the metaphor really falls apart about the aliens, I think. But only after you see what's underpinning the system can you make intentional decisions about it, which is what the role of a designer is. I wish we would also like de-emphasize the making and the productivity Mm -hmm. aspect of a lot of these companies because... If we are making things with lower costs, if that is the promise of software, then the benefit is that we can slow the hell down. Yeah. And I, I kind of wish there would be like awards for all the things that companies chose not to make. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. We, we should start those. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it would be so, that can often be a very productive exercise, even if it doesn't mm-hmm. lead to a product per se. And I mean, we've spoken also a lot about like the corporate abortion awards. Oh, jeez. Oh, 
yeah, you wait until you're like mature enough and stable enough and ready to really like take care of a product. And before that, <laughs> you you get a... No, this is great. This is Jonathan Swift all the way down. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased with how we're we're wrapping this stuff up. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what we hear when we when we do the ethics workshop. We hear, oh, this is all well and good, but we're a delivery-driven organization. Right. No, I, I, yeah. I, I do think what you just, I mean, it did lead to a great joke, but, <laughs> and it was a great joke, and I want you to vote for it. And, uh, it's a really good point. You know, more and more, our jobs need to be about what did I keep from happening today? Mm -hmm. Like I kept my, like, I want to hear fantastic stories about like, I kept my company like, oh, holy shit. Here's a, here's a good question for us to ask our, our listener, uh, listeners. Um, There's really just the one at this point. Well, right now it's just seven. Yeah. What's the best thing that you've ever kept a company from doing? Oh, that is a very excellent. And you don't question. have to tell us that. Don't like. Don't you don't need to tell us the company? I mean, you can yeah. if you want. But what's the best thing you've ever kept a company from doing? And like by best thing, I don't mean like a really really great idea that you just killed out of spite. Right. <laughs> yeah. Your proudest moment in killing a corporate idea. Terrible idea. What did you stop? Yeah, yeah. that's good. Yeah. And I think we should leave it there for yeah, today. We will stop the podcast there. <laughs> We've done enough. We've done many things that might not be undoable today. Undo. Thanks for listening. And you can find us on Twitter. We're VODROCKS, B-O-D underscore R-O-C-K-S. You can also find us on iTunes, on Podbean, all of the things. Thank you for listening. I'll probably be dead by next week. Ah, uh, Goodbye. <laughs> This season, we're asking the question, what is the job of a designer? What is the job of a designer? Send your responses to us on Twitter at VOD underscore R-O-C-K-S, VODROCKS. Or you can send us an email to VOD, V-O-D, at muledesign.com. Bye.